Romans. Um, if this is your first time tuning into our live stream, um, we want to let you know we've been going through this series called uh, Doctrine That Dances. Uh, doctrine essentially means belief. And the reason why we call it Doctrine That Dances uh, is because like a dance, we want to see our beliefs lived out. We want to see our beliefs danced out, if you will, um, in, in life. So I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, and we're going to be opening up, or we're going to be picking up at verse 15 through 23. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. Um, If you're there in your household, I'm going to even ask you, if you can, to to stand, stand up, um, and then we could read God's word together. Romans chapter 6, verse 15 through 23. The Holy Spirit says this, what then? Are we to sin because we are under law, but we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God. That you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now... Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit, what fruit, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, but now. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You may be seated and God bless the reading of his word. As I read this chapter and read these verses in particular, I couldn't help but stir my soul to see the good news in this passage by implication. And the good news in this passage is that we belong to God's kingdom. Worship team, we belong to God's kingdom. Pastor Eric, everybody here helping out. Audio team, we belong to God's kingdom. Those tuning in online, we belong to God's kingdom if you have believed in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And God, in his kingdom, he is sovereign and he's accomplishing his purposes in the world today. And he's accomplishing his purposes through the church. And if you believe in Jesus, you are part of the church. So the good news is that we as a community, as a family, we have purpose in this world, no matter what happens. Man, that's good news. 
because we belong to God's kingdom. Yet, we're in a crucial moment in, in the American church because oftentimes in the American church, we have a problem. And this problem is that many times we divorce God's kingdom from our everyday life here on earth. N let me see if I can illustrate that for you. Have you ever heard this? Don't mix in religion with politics. That's just an expression of our divorce from the gospel and how that relates to the way we live as citizens or as people who live in this country. Or how about this? Many times we compartmentalize our spirituality to Sunday service or Sunday live streaming, but it has no impact. Or sometimes it's really hard to see how God's, impact, God's kingdom makes any impact on our, day, on, our, on our lives day to day. What about the way we approach romantic relationships, our pursuits of romantic relationships? Maybe you're, you're listening or watching this live stream and you're like, man, I want to get booed up. But you don't know how God's kingdom influences the way you get booed up. Or what about our marriages? Or what about the way that we raise our children? Many times, the way that we, we do these things is divorced from God's kingdom rule. But if I could comfort you today, in reality, this, is, this scenario is nothing new to the church. Every church in every country every time has struggled with this tension. As a matter of fact, as your friend and as your pastor, I want to let you know, I struggle with this tension almost on a daily basis. And if you don't believe me, just talk to my wife and she'll tell you. I struggle with this tension. We're all struggling with this tension. The church has always struggled with this tension, so we are in good company today. And our text today demonstrates that even even the first century church wrestled with what it looks like to live for God's kingdom in the everyday. So for the next few minutes, I'd like us to consider God's kingdom in light of its character, in light of its system, and then I want us to consider its outcome as it pertains to this tension of knowing how God's kingdom comes on earth or comes into our reality. So if we look at Romans chapter 6, verse 15, and I want to unpack to you the kingdom character. The first thing I want you to see is that God's kingdom character is characterized by grace. So I think about this. I think about when I was in college one time, uh, I was in the line ready to get ready to pay for some food um, that I wanted to buy. But I was a super, super broke college student. I mean, extremely broke. So I was in line actually about to pay for that food in faith. And as I'm there, you know, the, 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 the person is ringing me up and, and I'm here by faith trying to pay for my meal and they swipe and I get declined. I'm like, yo, can you try it again a little bit? You know, maybe one or two times. And then I'm like trying to check my bank statement. You know, I'm trying to get it together. He does it again. It gets declined. And then the gentleman right behind me, he, 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 he silently says, hey, bro, I got you. Don't worry. And what ends up happening is he pays for my meal on the spot. 
he freed me from the shame that I would have had in this long line. And then afterwards, I was just so grateful. And that day, my vulnerability turned into honor and gratitude. And that's the way that grace works. Here in this text, Paul, he asked the question, are we to sin or are we to live our own way because we are, under, we are not under law but under grace? Grace means unearned favor from God. And like I was in that line, we were all vulnerable because of our sin in light of God's wrath. Because that's what we deserve for disobeying God with our lives and rejecting God as Lord. We were vulnerable to God's wrath, yet God sent Jesus on earth to take the penalty for our sin, and that's death. And in exchange for that, we got the righteousness of Jesus. We were declared right in God's eyes, and we were allowed to be part of God's kingdom, part of God's family, and we are children. And the good news today is that if you believe in Jesus, there's nothing that you can do to earn God's favor. There's nothing that you can do that can take away God's favor. The moment you believe, you are sealed. You have the favor of God on your life, no matter how you feel, because Jesus paid the fee. And now we reap the benefits despite our vulnerability in God's eyes. That's God's grace. But here, what we see is a question. And it's a question that all of us struggle with to some degree. Now, he says, are we to sin because we are not under law but under Grace? This means that because God has given us generous favor, that that wasn't something that we deserved, does that mean that we can live any old way? let Let me bring it a little bit closer to home. Have you ever been in your house and you're like about to do something that you know you shouldn't be doing? And then you're like negotiating with yourself and God and you're like, Man, if I do this, man, God's got me because God is so gracious. God is so forgiving. Have you ever struggled with that tension? This is the tension that the Apostle Paul is highlighting in this text. Many Christians struggle with this text because we all have the tendency to take God's grace for granted. So he says, are we to sin? Because we are not under law, but under grace. But I also want to unpack why he says, because we are not under law. You know, all of us, we're governed by some sort of moral code before coming to Christ. All of us, we try to measure up to some sort of moral code. And all of us, we fail at those moral codes. We try to do right, or we try to measure up because we're trying to be approved. But yet yet God's grace tells us that God approves us and we no longer need to do that. But sometimes we go back into trying to be approved by those moral codes because we want to be accepted by God or by people. So we try to live life our own way and try to measure up. And this is the tension that we have. And sometimes we take God's grace for granted and we go back to that old way of trying to measure up. Here's the tension. But I just want to let you know, you don't need to measure up no more. 
God's grace, if you believe in Jesus, has been granted to you. And you are approved by God. And because you're approved by God and you have God's grace, now we have a responsibility as God's people. So, receiving God's grace, as beautiful as it is, is not free from our obligation as kingdom citizens. We must align with God's kingdom system. Let's look at God's system. So I, I, like, I like to hone in on the idea that God's kingdom has a system of righteousness. And to capture this in verses 16 through 19, the apostle Paul, he brings up the imagery of Roman household slavery. Roman household slavery was not like the demonic American slavery that our country is guilty of. The Roman slavery system was based on conquered nations, not race. It didn't dehumanize the image of God in people, but rather it was based on conquered nations. Also, household slaves were often working professionals like doctors, educators, and lawyers. And one commentator that I was reading said that about 60% of Rome's population in this day were slaves. So think about that. The overwhelming majority in Rome were slaves working. It was, it was more, more akin to an employee-employer relationship in, in some regard here in this context. And Rome was populated. It was about one, one million people to four million people. And some commentators say that we don't know that number because there were so many slaves. So here when Paul is about to break down Roman slavery, or that as an illustration, we, we need to understand that context, that it's not American slavery. It's actually a system, and it was different because slaves actually had the ability to buy their own freedom in the Roman system. They had that opportunity. Also, with the help of their masters, household slaves could achieve the status of their masters. As a matter of fact, even as slaves, Romans, Roman household slaves actually had higher status than many freed persons in that society. So you can see how it's different. And using that same illustration, what Paul first highlights is, upon believing the gospel, the fact that Jesus died and rose from the grave, God set us free from the authority of sin and gave us a nature that can obey him. Okay, God gave us the ability to obey him because before we couldn't obey God because we were enslaved to sin. And this is what we see in verse 15. In verse 15, he goes into this illustration that essentially says, who you serve is your master, and that leads to either death or it leads to righteousness. Verse 16, he says, you are either a slave of one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. What is he talking about? In this context, death actually is an illustration for corruption. Corruption and ultimately eternal separation from God. He's saying you are either a slave to a corrupted life or you're a slave to obeying God, which leads to righteousness. But then in verse 17, he says, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. He says that you who were once slaves of sin have, begin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. 
That phrase, the standard of teaching, refers to the gospel. God created us to be submissive to his compassionate lordship over our lives. Yet like Roman slaves of that day, humans are not enslaved or they don't belong to God innately. Humans are enslaved to sin and rebelliousness to God. And the only payment to be set free from sin and the payment of sin, which is eternal separation from God, is by belief in Jesus. As I said before, though, when we believe in Jesus, we are declared right in God's eyes. God sees us as righteous. Therefore, when we believe that Jesus took the punishment of our sin, we are seen as those who are, to be, are supposed to practice righteousness in this world. We become servants of righteousness because the righteousness of God in us is supposed to be a reflection of God to us. So this is why Paul at the end, at verse 19, he says, present your members or present your bodies as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. I think we need to understand righteousness a little bit more in order to understand what that looks like or what this system is like. Biblically, righteousness tends to connote this idea of an act of righting wrongs in order to create a relationship. Actually, if you read the Bible from beginning to end, you'll see that righteousness and the word justice actually share the same cognate. So they kind of carry the same idea of righting wrongs so that you're made right or seen as right in a relationship. So here we see the word righteousness written three times from verses 16 to 19. And what this is saying is, that the same way that God made you right is the same way that we should be behaving toward others and now making right the things that were wrong in our lives. Saying that now because we believe in Jesus, we have the license to do right in the world. Just like Jesus did right for us. So by application, this text is saying that we are responsible to be righteous. In other words, because our faith in Jesus, not for a relationship with Jesus, there's a difference. We're not righteous to try to be right to God. No, that's, we, God covered us by his grace. We are righteous because of God's grace. And because of that, we devote our lives to making broken parts right with God because we still got a long way to go. We still got personalities. We're still impatient. We still struggle with overeating, and we need to make those things right. But the good news is because we believe in Jesus, we now have the ability to make those things right. You catch my drift? So we can make relationships right in the same way that God made our relationship right. We have the capacity That's good news to marriages that are on the rocks today. I want to let you know that you can make your marriage right today if you would just believe in the gospel and and apply that gospel to the manner in which you handle your marriage. 
I want to let you know today, maybe you got some strife with somebody, or maybe you're looking at the social inequalities and injustice you see in the world. I want to let you know that if you believe in the gospel, you actually have the capacity, the ability to make things right. Because through the gospel, we become servants of righteousness. And this is why in the text, in verse 19, Paul urges us, present or offer your bodies or members as slaves, as workers to righteousness, leading to sanctification. But how do we do this? Or why should we do this? Excuse me. We should do this because, sorry, I lost my notes. Because of the outcome. And as we consider our responsibility, it's good for us to see the outcome of righteous living. Which brings us to our third point. God's kingdom overcomes death. All of us, have a strategy for surviving life, for escaping death. There's entire industries, insurance industries, that kind of lead us on a strategy for surviving death. We have a strategy for how to accomplish our life's purpose, how to navigate our relationships, how to fight against the evils of this world. However, the problem is that all of us are guilty of attempting to survive life apart from God's reign over us. But verse 20, I like, I like it because it, it, it shows us the end result when we follow our own way. Verse 20, it says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And here in this context, death is not only separation from God, but everything that comes with it. Shame, guilt, isolation, feeling like like the weight of the world is weighing you down. He says the end of those things, the end of you living your life, any old way that you want to is death. However, Christians survive life because we can overcome our corrupted character. Verse 22, it says, But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Why does he say that? He says that because at the cross, Jesus demonstrated he was the Savior because he defeated the power of sin. And the power of sin is what corrupts us. And what corrupts us is our inability to do right. And our inability to do right leads us to greater and greater consequences. But Jesus at the cross, he demonstrated that he could overcome sin because he was sinless and paid the price for sin. So he defeated the power of sin to corrupt our lives any further, church family. But also Christians survive life Because we will defeat death once and for all. And that's why in verse 23 he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why does he say this? 
Because Jesus Christ, although he died, he resurrected from the grave, showing that death could not overcome him. So if we are found in Jesus Christ, then we are one with Jesus Christ. And when we believe in Jesus, death cannot overcome us. We will be eternally connected with God. And here he says, it's a free gift from God. But how do we get this gift? How do we get this gift? We get it by surrendering our own lordship. We must surrender our own lordship from our own lives. Many of us have been living life our own way in particular areas in our lives. Many of us have habits Patterns that we've had since when we were small kids that we still struggle with to this day. And you're struggling and you're, you're trying to get out of those patterns. I want to let you know that the free gift of God is eternal life. And also that what leads to eternal life is our sanctification. God's progressive cleansing of our sin. But the way that we own those things is by surrendering our will, surrendering our habits, surrendering the way that we think, surrendering all of us to God and saying, God, here I am. Take me. Teach me. Teach me what it looks like to do right in this particular circumstance in my life. So as we bring our consideration full circle you think about the fact that God's kingdom is characterized by grace it's a system of righteousness because we believe in the gospel and we are enabled to do right because of Jesus Christ and because of our outcome has been settled and we are being formed into the image of Jesus the question on the floor is what does it look like to belong to God's kingdom on earth. What does it look like? As we consider all of that, how do we activate these truths into our lives when we're struggling? So I thought about this. I thought about an article that I read. It's about a country named Eritrea. Eritrea is in East Africa. And in 1994, this war-torn country was facing famine because bugs would infest the grain in their warehouses. They had full warehouses, and bugs would just be swarming in there, just eating all of their crops, namely their grains. And the local villagers depended on local agriculture for survival. So you could just imagine how big of a problem this was for that country. And being that it was a war-torn country, it also lacked resources to try to create some new innovations. So here, as they try to fight off the insects, they, 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 they were found to be just out of solutions because they, they started using pesticides. But there was a problem. 
as they were using pesticides, the pesticides would make people sick and insects would develop resistance to those chemicals. And then people began to die. So here they're trying to fix a problem with very, very little resources and actually it's creating more problems. And then an organization in the country called on a man named Shlomo Navarro. Shlomo Navarro was an Israeli innovator. Navarro developed a large seal bag for food, for food made of polyvinyl chloride called the grain cocoon. The grain cocoon. Let me tell you what the grain cocoon was. This was a, a bag that you would put grains in. You could fit up to five to 300 tons of grains in this bag. And once you sealed this bag, the, 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 the bag would trap bugs and their eggs inside and deprive them of oxygen. And they would suffocate those bugs to death. Also, the bag could, could save 99% of a farmer's crops. So think about that. This is a large quantity. And this was met with skepticism when Navarro came to Eritrea. He, he, people were like, man, will this work? Will this really, really work? But Navarro was confident because he had battle-tested his product, and he knew that this would work. He knew it would work because he would be on the ground in different places just trying his product. And he said, take me at my word. Trust me. This can save your crops and can save your life. So Novaro came, and what the people in Eritrea needed was faith in that bag. But faith wasn't good enough. They actually had to obey Navarro in light of their faith in that bag. They needed to obey the instructions for for storing and saving their lifeline. So they took their chances. I want to tell you that the good news is that two days later, the villagers opened the bag, and when they went through that bag, they noticed that the bugs were killed and that the grain was saved and their lives were saved from starvation and famine that they no longer needed pesticides to try to save their lives or save some. They could rely on the grain cocoon in order to keep their lives alive. In the same way, I'd like to let you know that there's a better grain cocoon that saves our lives. And the way that we implement our faith or what we consider in the text today, God's grace, the system that is characterized by righteousness of his kingdom, and the way that we secure our eternity, or not secure our eternity, it's already secured, the way that we lean into our security found in eternity with Jesus is by believing in Jesus. Jesus, who he, having life, he lived a perfect life. He never disobeyed God the Father. And then he died the death that we deserve. And not two days, but three days. He resurrected from the grave and he showed all of us that walking with Jesus actually works. And that all we need to do is obey that Jesus died 
for our lives and that walking with Jesus will ultimately lead to eternal life because his life becomes our life. So, what does it look like to belong to God? It looks like obeying the Lord who saves life, not destroys it. Sin, like a pesticide, will begin to corrupt our lives. And if you don't know Jesus, it will ultimately lead you to eternal separation from God. But if you believe in Jesus, the way that you activate God's kingdom on earth in your life is by your obedience to the Lord by your obedience to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your grace. We thank you that you don't abandon us. We thank you, Lord, that we are saved by faith and not by what we do. But we thank you, Lord, that we don't have to work to be approved. Lord, all we need to do is believe. But we also thank you, Lord, that you fix our broken parts through our obedience to you. Thank you, Lord. I just want to pray uh, for everyone listening to the sermon. I pray that you would empower them, Lord, to obey you because of their faith. At this moment, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.